0: It's precarious balancing this water on here. You got it. All right, good. We're good. All right, good morning. So, um, Thanksgiving's right around the corner. Do you realize that? That's crazy, right? It's a great time, holidays, tradition, so I figure we should start the traditional way. What is a pumpkin's favorite sport? Squash. <laughs> I don't even know what squash is. The vegetable or the sport, actually. Uh, What's the best way to stuff a turkey? You just give them lots of pizza and ice cream until they can't handle anymore. And he's like, no more for me, I'm stuffed. So pilgrims came over on the Mayflower, right? Uh, What did college students travel on? Scholarships. (laughs) Scholar, all right. All right, one last one. What happened to the turkey when he got into a fight? Man, he got the stuffing knocked out of him. Is what happened. (laughs) All right. Good morning. My name's Yo. I'm one of the small group leaders here at City Church. Uh, If you're wondering where Pastor Jeff is, he's getting some much needed rest, hopefully. Um, And I just got to say, that guy's been working hard. You know, I hope you guys appreciate how much that guy has been doing. This whole transition thing, this has been a lot of work. And I hope you guys really appreciate all that Pastor Jeff and his family have, have done uh, as we've made this transition in the church. Uh, they've been awesome. That being said, this is another one of those awkward chapters in Joshua, and I find it rather convenient that every time we get to one of these weird, awkward chapters, Jeff's like, you know, I'm busy this weekend. Would you mind taking this one? I'm like, yeah, sure. And then I look at the chapter, like, well, hang on just a second. It's like, oh, sorry, I can't talk to you right now. It's like, that's not, that's not really what happened. It feels like it, but it's not, that's not... That's not what he's doing. In any event, we are in Joshua chapter 10 today. And this message might be a little challenging. But my hope is that you'll hear the thrilling good news that this chapter really foreshadows for us as we go through it. Despite how challenging it it may be. Uh, So we're going to start, logically, in verse 1. Joshua 10, verse 1. I'm going to read a few passages here. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its kings that he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly. Because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So Adonai king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, I don't know if I'm saying these names right, just to be clear. Uh, King of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon, saying, come up to me and help me. Let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. Okay. So, if you remember last time, Jeff was, uh, Pastor Jeff was preaching out of Joshua chapter 9, right? There's these people, the, the Gibeonites, right? They heard everything that God was doing. They heard everything that Israel was doing as they followed God into the promised land, and they, they kind of freaked out. And so they decided, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to make a treaty with Israel, but I know they're not going to make a treaty with us if they know that we're some nearby person, so we're going to pretend like we're from a faraway land, right? And so they come and they make this treaty, and Israel, without consulting God, right, makes this treaty with the Gibeonites, which ends up causing all sorts of problems for, like, generations, okay? If you, if you don't remember that, go back and listen to it. It was a good message. So there's a couple things I, I want to mention here, and just spoiler alert, um, people die in this chapter. A lot of people die in this chapter, and some people get put out when we get to these parts of the Bible. You know, they, we get to these these parts where Israel's going through the promised land, and God's saying, kill everybody. And people are like, that's harsh, man. That's, that's, I don't know, that's not right. And it feeds into this whole stereotype of the God of the Old Testament is the angry God of wrath, right? That's the Old Testament God, angry God of wrath. He just goes around smiting people at a, on a whim, right? He's just like, I don't like you. You're smited. You're smitedeth. Smitedeth is the King James Version. Right? That's, that's what people think. This is the, the Old Testament, God just went around killing people on a whim because he was angry all the time and no one would ever make him happy. But Here's the thing. Have you ever asked why he's telling Israel to do all this? So it's kind of interesting. If you go back to the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is trying to help prepare the people to get ready to go into the promised land. And in chapter 9, starting at verse 4, he says this. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you and that he may confirm the word, the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, so what was the reason Israel was going in killing everyone? It was because of the wickedness of the land. It was because God was delivering judgment on people who were living there. He was delivering judgment on their consistent, persistent, willing, disobedience, And rebellion against God. In short, Israel was wiping everyone out because God was judging sin. And here's the thing. Some people think that's not fair. Or it's too harsh. Too harsh to kill everybody because of their sin. (laughs) But here's the fact of the matter. Sin is bad. People, sin is really bad. Sin is egregious. Sin is an offense against a holy God. And we have almost no understanding of how bad sin really is. And that's why we try to play it off. Oh, it's just a mistake. Oh, I had a lapse in judgment. It was just a little sin. Or like one of my favorites, we all have like our pet sins, right? That's my pet sin. It's my cute little pet sin. I'm like, oh, it can't be that bad. Look how cute it is. It's my little pet sin. Right? We all have our pet sins. I have pet sins. And then we get offended when God judges sin, right? In our minds, it's unfair, Because we've downplayed sin to make it seem like it's no big deal, so we don't feel guilty about it. And then in a weird twist, we make God out to be the bad guy because he's so mean when he judges sin. Despite the fact we're the ones who made the mistake, we're the ones who offended him. But we're like, God, why are you so harsh? It's your fault. We're the ones who sin. But we're making God to be out the bad guy. We read passages like this. Man, God's kind of a jerk going around killing everyone. All they did was sin. All they did was sin. Really? Are you following me here? I mean, this is kind of crazy logic, right, that we have sometimes. So let's get one thing clear. Sin is bad. It's really, really bad. It's really, 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 really bad. It's not something we should take lightly. Sin is so bad that the Bible says in Leviticus chapter 17, starting in verse 11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Here's the deal. Blood is the price for sin. Those wicked people in the promised land, they weren't being killed because Israel was better. They were being killed because blood is the price for sin. Their sin required blood as payment, and it cost them their lives. And yeah, that's kind of horrible. Now, hopefully you can see where I'm going with this, though. You might be wondering, okay, come on, man, you're really bumming me out with all this sin stuff. You're making it sound so bad. Well, that's because it is bad, all right? But if we understand how bad sin is, we're going to have a greater appreciation for how great grace is. Blood is the price to be paid for sin. Your sin. My sin. And here's something really important I don't want you to miss. God makes the rules, but he plays by his own rules. So, God made this rule. Blood covers sin. And he played by his own rules when he let his only son shed his blood to cover my sin. Romans 5 puts it this way. But God shows us his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, sometimes we avoid talking about sin because it makes us feel bad or it offends us, right? Don't talk about sin. That offends me. Crazy ironic, right? Well, consider this. How do you think it makes God feel when we don't take sin seriously? We even sometimes say, hey, you know, as long as I'm not hurting anyone, what's the big deal? My sin's not hurting anyone. It's my pet sin. It doesn't hurt anyone. Maybe me, but no one. God sacrificed his own son on our behalf. He let him die a bloody, gruesome death on the cross to pay the price for our sin. How dare we even suggest that sin is no big deal? Or even worse, how dare we ever say, well, my sin's not hurting anyone. cross says otherwise. (laughs) Now, why does the Bible keep making such a big deal about sin? Because it is a big deal. It's a life or death kind of big deal. It's a where are you a spending eternity kind of big deal? It's a, we could never make it right on our own, so God made it right for us through Jesus Christ on the cross kind of big deal. People, let's understand how bad sin really is. And then we can start to cherish how amazing God's love and grace really is. We need to ponder and be grateful for how incredible the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ all on our behalf, truly was. Okay, so, (laughs) that was kind of a long rabbit trail. You're like, weren't we talking about Joshua? We are, I know. I I think that was an important rabbit trail to follow on. So we're going to get back to our story here. So we have a bunch of kings, right? They decide they're going to band together. They're going to go make war on the Gibeonites. And this is where we learn something else that's kind of important to remember about sin. God will show us grace and forgiveness, right? Right? But that doesn't always mean that the consequences of our sin magically get wiped away. Oh, that's gone. No big deal. There are consequences for the choices that we make. So if you look at what's happening here with Israel, they made a bad choice not to consult God before they made this treaty with the Gibeonites. And now we see that choice almost immediately has some consequences for them, starting in verse 6. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp at Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. So Israel made a treaty that they probably shouldn't have made, right? Clearly. And now they're being pulled into a battle that they probably shouldn't have had to fight. That's the thing about sin. Sometimes its consequences have long-lasting impacts. And it's unfortunate. But it's something, if we like, keep that in mind, perhaps we'll take it a little more seriously before we cross that line. As we said, God's grace, though, is amazing. And as we see here in this story, even though Israel made this mistake and sinned against God, he was still able to make the best out of that situation. One other interesting note about this. Did you, did you see where they're at again? Gilgal. I mean that should sound familiar after our time in Joshua, right? They spent a lot of time here in Gilgal. Think about it. Gilgal was the place of memorial. After they crossed the Jordan, they set up all those stones after they uh, came into the promised land. Gilgal was a place of radical obedience. That's where they got circumcised again to say, we're setting ourselves apart and following God. Gilgal was a place of remembrance of salvation. It's the first place they had Passover when they were in the promised land. Gilgal was a place where the manna stopped and they started living off the produce of the land. So Gilgal was an extremely important staging point for Israel as they were going in and conquering the promised land. No spiritual point for you. I just thought it was interesting that Gilgal keeps showing up. So if you're wondering, like, what's, where is he going with it? That's it. That's all I got there. All right, verse 8. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth-Horon, and struck them as far as a zek- Azekah and Macheda. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Okay, there's a few interesting things about how all this takes place. First, it's interesting to me that not only did Joshua come to the rescue of the Gibeonites, but he came with all the men of valor, and they marched all through the night to get there on time. Now think about it. This treaty with the Gibeonites was kind of a bad deal. And now all these kings are going to go in there and try and wipe out Gibeon. Israel could have sat back and was like, oh yeah, go for it. Wipe them out. Problem solved. We don't have to worry about it anymore. Woo, that was easy. Woo, we got off easy on that one. They didn't do that, though, because in doing that, they would have been breaking the vow that they made to the Gibeonites and doubling down on their sin against God, right? So instead of just, like, kicking back, like, go ahead, take care of it, not only did they keep their vow, but they kept it vigorously. I mean, if you look at how they did this, all the men of valor went, all the men of war went. They marched through the night to do this. They weren't only going to keep their vow, they were going to do it with passion, And it wasn't because they liked the Gibeonites. It's because they didn't want to cross God again. It's like, all right, we screwed up that one time, God. This time, we're all in. We're going to do what's right by you. Sometimes the best thing that we can do after we sin is just commit ourselves to some radical obedience to God. And I'll be honest with you. That means sometimes we're going to get pulled into some circumstances or situations that might make us uncomfortable. It might be challenging. We might not want to go there but it's a far better place to go than being in sin against God. If we take sin seriously and we have that choice, well, I could either stay in this sin or I could radically obey God, even though that looks scary, I think we would rather go and be with God than stay in our sin. If we understand how bad sin truly is, we're going to understand how much better it is to fully obey God with everything we got. After we receive his forgiveness and we repent flip those after we repent and receive his forgiveness so Israel's going up against five different kings these are like kingdom states right okay the way the area was broken up so there are like five individual kingdoms and God tells Joshua once again don't be afraid it's interesting to note that it's after God tells Joshua this don't be afraid That's where it says, okay, then Joshua came upon them suddenly after marching all night. Joshua didn't just sit back and say, okay, God said uh, not to be afraid. Cool, go ahead, God, do your thing. Instead, what Joshua did was he trusted God. Okay, I don't have to be afraid. He trusted God. He's going to deliver them into our hands. And then he took action. I don't have to be afraid. God's on our side. Let's launch a surprise attack on these guys. We'll march all night and get there before they expect us, and we'll launch a surprise attack. We've talked about this before, and I think it's worth mentioning again. When God makes promises, that's a good time for us to act. When he says he's at work, that's not the time to wait. Like, oh, cool, I want to see what's going to happen. I'll just sit back and watch. That's the time for us to gear up and get into action with God. After Joshua heard God's promises and his assurance not to be afraid, he puts his plan into action. He's like, all right, I got an idea. This is how we're going to do it. And as we've seen in the past, sometimes God changes those plans. He changed Joshua's plans of attack in the past. This time he didn't, so Joshua just carried out his, his plan, and it all went swimmingly. We need to make our own plans of attack. Be ready if God's going to change them. Hey, maybe you should do it this way. Like, okay, let's do it that way. But if he doesn't, then we can carry out our plans with confidence and assurance that God is with us. The important thing to remember is that God's people should be a people of action, not inaction. That's why this worked, because Joshua took action. And there's one other interesting thing to note here. Look at what it says in verse 11. God threw down hailstones. More died from those than the sword. This is kind of crazy, isn't it? These hailstones are falling down. One thing that seems to be implied here is it was only the Amorites, the Canaanites, were getting killed by these giant hailstones, right? That, That seems to be the implication. Now, like a lot of pagan cultures in that area, these Amorites, these Canaanites, uh, very likely worship nature-based deities. So, they're fighting Israel. These giant hailstones are starting to come down. Can you imagine what they're thinking? It's like, not only is this going badly, not only is Israel's God really powerful, our own gods are turning against us. They're throwing hailstones down at us. It couldn't be any worse. As far as they're concerned, their gods had switched to the other side. (laughs) That's a bad day. It's intense stuff. This is crazy stuff. But then you get to verse 11, and this is kind of like the moment we all wait for in Joshua chapter 10, right? This is like the big moment in the chapter. So Joshua chapter 10, starting in verse 11. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said, inside of Israel, son... Stand still at Gibeon, and moon, in the valley of Algeon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven, and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since, when the Lord heeded the voice of a man. For the Lord fought for Israel. So I'm not entirely sure if it's okay to do this in church, but, you know, this is how my mind works, so we're going to go here. This whole scene kind of makes me think of that Adam Sandler movie, Click. Does anyone remember that Adam Sandler movie, Click, where he had, like, the life remote kind of thing? So in that movie, he gets this magical remote, and he can, like, fast-forward or pause or slow down time. Like, he uses it, like, to fast-forward through the fight with his wife so he doesn't have to, you know, endure it. It's like, oh, Cool. That's kind of what I think, like, what happened here with Joshua, right? Don't you kind of picture that? Like, God's giving Joshua the universe remote control. Like, here you go, Joshua, go ahead, push pause. And like any guy, Joshua's like, dude, that's cool, pause. What does this button do? No, 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 push that button. Ah, you push that button. All right, that's it, Joshua. You've lost remote privileges for all of humanity, for all of eternity. You're never getting the remote again. God takes the remote back. And that's why it's never happened again. Clearly, that's not what happened in the Bible. I getting some weird looks from people. They're like, what? Why would you even think that? I don't know why I think that. It's just the way my mind works, okay? I'm sorry. I see the universal. I mean, I'm a guy. I like having the remote control. It makes sense to me that Joshua wanted the remote. But that's not what happened, okay? So what did happen was Joshua was engaged in this epic battle, right? He needed more time to finish the task, and he asked God for it. And then God did it because, as it says in verse 14, The Lord fought for Israel. You know, when the Lord is on our side fighting for us, I don't think there's anything that can stop us. Even the sun stood still because the Lord fought for Israel. I'm sorry, I'm going to step on some toes here, but I got to say this. If we're not seeing victories in the battles that we're fighting, maybe we should stop and assess, are we fighting the Lord's battles or are we fighting our own battles? We just got through mid-season elections. Are we fighting the Lord's battles or our own battles? I'm not going to say any more about that, but I just thought I'd bring that up. Now, anytime something like this happens in the Bible, some crazy miracle like this, right? People want to know, well, how did it happen? And I read the Bible, and it says, God did it. <laughs> there <you> go. Cool. <laughs> it was a supernatural miracle. That works for me. But there's still some people who want to know more, right? They want to know, like, well, how can that possibly happen? I don't understand. And they're like, all right, well. So there's a lot of theories on what happened to make this happen. Uh, and the, one of the more interesting ones is actually suggested by this guy, Emmanuel Velikovsky in a publication called Worlds in Collision. And he suggests that perhaps a comet was passing by the Earth at this time, and it passed by so close that the gravitational interaction between the comet and the Earth was so powerful that this comet was able to tilt the Earth's axis a little bit as it passed by, therefore making it look like the sun stood still. So, you know, ah, okay, natural explanation. Don't have to worry about, it. There's, there's no God. It was just some natural freak thing. Whew, that makes me feel better. That's probably what he's thinking. But here's what I'm thinking. It's like, okay, fine, comet passed by the earth. I find it interesting that comet passed by at the exact moment when Israel was fighting this big battle against these Amorites and also at the exact moment in that battle when Joshua was like, oh, I need more time. And that's when the comet was passing by as he was saying, make the sun stand still and the comet was passing by right at that exact moment. It still seems like miraculous to me, all right? That's a lot of coincidences. I'm still gonna call that a miracle. This comet theory is also another way that some people explain the hailstones. It wasn't God throwing down hailstones. It was like debris from the comet tail as the comet passed by, right? Debris coming off the comet and it was falling down onto the earth. And and that's where you get those hailstones from. Natural explanation. No miracle. Just regular, natural, freaky stuff. And yet, all that comet debris only seemed to kill the Amorites. It didn't land on the Israelites. Last I checked... Debris from an object flying past the earth isn't really selective on where it hits. It just sort of falls. So, still going to call it a miracle. Still seems pretty amazing that only the Amorites got killed by this comet debris and not the Israelites. (laughs) I just don't understand some people, when they're trying to explain miracles... It's like watching movies with people who... You're watching this movie, and they're like, well, that's not believable. It's like, that's not believable? We've been watching the rest of this movie? That's the one thing? It's like watching The Fast and Furious with my wife. We're watching The Fast and Furious with my wife. We get to this part where the rock, he's got like an arm cast on. He's all like flexing to get it off. Daddy's got to go to work. You know, and he's like... And he's breaking out of it as he flexes. And that's the part where my wife's like, whatever. As if. Like, that could happen. And I'm thinking... That's the part you find unbelievable? We had cars jumping off of buildings into another building. People are blowing up and they walk away like they're wild E. Coyote. All that's fine. But the point when she says, whatever, like that could happen, is breaking out of the cast as he flexes. That's the way some people treat miracles in the Bible, right? They look at the empty tomb and they go like, well, there's too much historical evidence to really deny that. So I can't really say anything about that. But the sun standing still, whatever, like that could happen. The grave is empty, but this is what you can't believe? You have no other explanation for an empty tomb, but this one, you're like, well, you know, no miracle. We've we got other explanations. I don't understand that. I don't know what to tell you. God's awesome. Yeah, he does awesome things. Sometimes you can't explain them. Sometimes you just got to go, hmm, yeah, weird. God did that. I don't know what to say. <laughs> he did it. Supernatural, no explanation. It's just a miracle because God is amazing. If he can raise the dead, making the sun stand still for a day doesn't seem like it'd be all that difficult. That's just where I go. Okay, sorry, got sidetracked again. One last cool thing I want to mention here, and we'll wrap this up, so if the worship team wants to head on up towards the stage. So in uh, Joshua 10, starting in verse 20, When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Makeda. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. Man, you think the people were afraid of Israel and its God before this? These people are freaking out now. And I find it so interesting that in verse 21, it says, not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. The Amplified Bible says, no one uttered a threatening word against any of the sons of Israel. The contemporary English version, I like this one, says, no one around dared say anything bad about the Israelites. That's quite the reputation. I kind of wonder... Maybe that's the reputation the church should have. Don't you think? Commentator David Guzik put it this way. Buckle up, this is a little rough. By analogy and application, the church, just like Israel, should be feared in the sense that it should be a place where people know God will conquer them. They should have the idea, if I keep coming here, God is going to conquer me. I'll have to submit my life to him. Too many churches present a harmless sort of God who demands no surrender from his people. (laughs) Right? It's a little bit of a gut punch, but it's true, don't you think? I mean, I think the biggest takeaway we can take from this chapter, what kind of a God do we worship? What kind of God do we present as a church? We got that happy, warm, fuzzy, harmless God, Doesn't care about your sin, only your happiness, as long as you're happy, don't worry about it. We have that God who grants wishes, right? Poof, what do you need, right? Just wants to give us everything that we can to have our dreams come true, tra-la-la, skip along. No accountability, no responsibility on your part, free ride, just enjoy yourselves. Are we presenting the God of the Bible? Which means sometimes there's hard things to think about when it comes to the God of the Bible. He's a loving God, yes, yes. He's a just God. He's a holy God. He's a God that can be a little scary sometimes. But he's worthy of our adoration, our devotion, our worship, and our obedience. I love how T.S. Lewis put it in his Narnia allegory. When characters would talk about Aslan, you know, the lion who represented God in the story, Some of the animals would say, "Well, is Aslan a tame lion?" I loved how some of the characters respond. They almost always laugh ahead of time, like, (laughs) "No, he's not tame, but he is good." I think sometimes we are more comfortable with the idea of a tame God. Frankly, I don't find that nearly as appealing as the idea of an uncontained infinite unpredictable God who is not tame but he is good he is loving he did send his son to die in our place rise from the dead so that we could have eternal life to pay a price that we could never pay on our own that's the God that Joshua and Israel served and it's the same one we serve today God of the Old Testament is still the same God today I think that's exciting so I, I called this message, How Sin Made the Sun Stand Still. Why did I do that? Because it has alliteration. I thought it was fun. <laughs> but as we learned today, the reason, the reason that Israel was warring against these people and quite frankly, slaughtering some people is because of the wickedness of the people in that land. It had nothing to do with how good or how cool Israel was as they went into the promised land. It was because of sin. It was because of the sin of the people in the land. The reason they were going to war is because God was judging their wickedness and their sin of every man, woman, and child in that land. And he was so thorough in judging sin, he made the sun stand still so Joshua could finish the task. I know, that sounds a little bleak, doesn't it? But there was this other day When God's judgment of sin didn't make the sun stand still, but it made eternity pause. It was the moment when God's precious son, Jesus, was gasping out his final breath as he hung, bloody, beaten, bruised, broken on a cross, and he said these words, it's is finished and then he gave up his life thirst shook the heavens thundered the the curtain in the temple was torn in two and in that moment sin was defeated forever sin was paid in full sin's dominion over my life over your life broken forever the death of Jesus was dark it was bloody it was bleak it was the greatest moment in all of history because sin was paid in full with the blood of Jesus now you may say well if sin was defeated why is the world still so bad The answer is quite simple for whatever reason some people would still choose sin over Christ because sin's not that bad Sin's not a big deal. How bad can it be? My life is fine. You see, Jesus paid the price for sin in full for all of us. And he gives us that as a gift. But we have to receive that gift to reap the benefits of that payment. We won't get the benefits of that payment until we receive the gift of Jesus Christ in our lives. God made the sun stand still while sin was judged in Joshua 10. Eternity stood still as God judged sin again and poured out his wrath on Jesus instead of us. God's judgment in full came down on Jesus. His wrath, when it comes to the egregiousness of sin, poured out on Jesus so I wouldn't have to endure it. Sin is vile. It's heinous. It's disgusting. God's grace through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is amazing. It can make your day today stand still if you really stop and ponder and think about it. Now, if you're a follower of Christ, I just want to encourage you let's not take sin lightly. I'll be honest with you. There's stuff in my life where I'm like, "Mm, no big deal. God will forgive me. That is sloppy grace. To go like, well, Jesus paid the price for it, so I'm fine. I'm covered. <laughs> and the moments we say that, we are, we, are, we are not appreciating what Jesus went through to pay that price for us. I'm not saying we're never going to sin again. I'm saying when it happens, it should break us. I'm so sorry I messed up like that, God. How could I do that to you? How could I offend you that way? Thank you for your Son. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for paying the price for me. As Christians, let's not take sin lightly. And if you're not a follower of Christ and you're listening to this and you feel that weight, you feel sin dragging you down, you just want to be free. Or maybe you're thinking, I do not want to pay for this with my life. I don't want to suffer the wrath and judgment of God. You don't have to. Jesus did it for you. And all you gotta do is follow him. And around here we say that's as easy as ABC. A, you have to admit. Admit you're a sinner. I've sinned. And it's serious. Let's not like, I admit I made a little boo-boo. Let's admit that was a serious offense against the holy God. And then believe is B, believe. Jesus Christ paid the price for that. Believe that Jesus Christ went to the cross, shed his blood so you don't have to shed your blood to pay the price for your sin. And then see, you confess Christ as Lord and you say, I'm not the ruler of my life anymore. Jesus is my Savior and my Lord. He didn't just save me, he's now in charge of my life. Instead of sin, I commit to radical obedience to God for the rest of my life. If that's something you want to do, it's as easy as just saying up a simple prayer, prayer is just talking to God, and it might sound like, "Lord, I'm a sin. I'm a sinner. I've offended you with my sin." And I'm sorry. I believe that Jesus Christ paid the price for that sin, and I confess that I need Him to save me and to be my Lord." And it's just that easy. We're going to have prayer teams on either side of the sanctuary. If that's a prayer that you've said or there's something else that you want to talk to the prayer team about, they're going to be there, pray with you, talk with you. Uh, They pray for you before you guys come in. A few of the things that they heard that um, maybe you need prayer for. Acid reflux. Someone who's wanting to serve, but they're afraid they're not just good enough to serve. Um, Someone who needs humility and repentance um, someone who gives un- too much to people pleasing. Someone who needs to give their broken heart to God. Uh, someone who's made a bad decision and they're just under condemnation. <laughs> there is no condemnation in Christ. Maybe suffering with some division in the family. If any of that's you or if there's anything else you need prayer for, go see our prayer teams. I just want to encourage you, you know, we're getting ready to go into the Thanksgiving season. Let's go out and do some great things and show people just how grateful we are to God for all that he's done for us in our lives, right? I hope you guys have a great week.